Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Elias Studios. Before we get started, we get into some heavy themes in this episode, and there is some strong language ahead. From Elias Studios, this is How to LA. I'm Brian De Los Santos. And I'm Evan Jacoby, a producer on the show. This is part two of our series on mutual aid in unhoused communities. If you haven't heard part one yet, you'll probably want to do that first. You can find it a little further down in our feed. To recap, we've got three big questions for this series. First... What does mutual aid look like in unhoused communities? So we give everything out in these brown paper bags. Syringes, alcohol pads, cotton balls. Second, why is mutual aid still necessary in Los Angeles if it's supposed to be this band-aid solution? Our goal is actually not to exist in the future by pushing for policy change so that we don't need to exist. And third, what kind of things can we all do, big and small, to help our unhoused neighbors? Last week, we heard what these groups actually do. Volunteer groups using the mutual aid model try to provide whatever is needed most. So we're walking downtown right now. We join them in the field where they offer things like fresh water, overdose prevention, or spare tents. With them bringing out water, it assists us in a way that you just can't explain. You need water for everything. They save lives, and that's a big deal. That's really hard to say in, like, homeless communities. In some unhoused communities, these groups might be the only people providing these life-saving services. We've been calling the city out repeatedly for this kind of failure of programming, even when they are providing necessary services. We all know the long-term solution to the homelessness crisis is affordable housing. But... In the meantime, tens of thousands of people are living unsheltered across Los Angeles. We know the city is doing some things. Same for the county, same for LASA, the Homeless Services Authority, and other agencies. But it's clear from episode one that unhoused people have some very basic, immediate needs that are not being met by government services. You're going to hear from a lot of people today. People experiencing homelessness. They give you a little bit of something to start off with, and the next thing you know, when it's gone, in a couple of days, what do you do? Elected officials. The city has found it very, very challenging to provide things like showers, porta potties never mind food or water. And we'll hear from volunteers again, too. It's good that private citizens are supporting each other, but that shouldn't be a stilt that the government relies on. The relationship between volunteer services and government services is a complicated one. So let's repeat our main question for today. Why is the mutual aid band-aid still on? 
aka where are these service gaps coming from for unhoused communities across Los Angeles? Part 2. The Forever Band-Aid. If mutual aid groups are going to become less necessary, then the services they provide need to come from somewhere else. But before we get too deep into the different types of government services out there, we need to unpack a few things about the government itself. LA is a unique place. We have a lot of different government agencies, each with different budgets. So if you want to point a finger at your local government official, you have a lot of options to choose from. Oh yeah, it's a lot. Unlike New York City, where it's all one big entity under a giant city government, LA is really a total mishmash. You've got the county, the city, LASA, a lot of different entities. This is Nick Gerda. He's the unhoused communities reporter at LAist. And he's covered a lot of the issues we're talking about today. We've relied on him a lot during our reporting to unpack some of the complexity surrounding these issues. Yeah, it's really reasonable to be confused by this. And there's a lot of overlap in responsibility. And the idea behind that about a century ago was to decentralize power. But the flip side is that you have all these different government entities and it can get really confusing. And in the past, what we've seen is a lot of finger pointing. So we followed two mutual aid groups while they were volunteering in different parts of L.A. One of them gives out water in Skid Row. The other provides harm reduction supplies in Palms. We spell this out in episode one, but things like access to water or overdose prevention, these are life or death services, right? Like, it's easy for us to sit here and say, okay, well, this stuff is life or death, the government should be doing it. But then the question becomes, which government agency is in charge of which service? You know, it's funny, like traditionally, the way these government programs work is it's sort of top down. They look at funding streams, what money's coming their way, and then divvy it up, but not really looking from the ground level at what people's needs are and what are all the ways that they can be helped. What you're describing is a way of looking at what the community needs first and then saying, okay, we need funding for X, Y, and Z. In reality, like I said, it's a lot more top down. So you can get this issue where you have a solution looking for a problem instead of problems looking for a solution. And that can create a lot of gaps. What you end up with is a bunch of different agencies doing different pieces of this, but not really one entity taking responsibility for an entire suite of services. Part of it gets into the philosophy of what is the role of government. Um, does government have responsibility and taxpayers have a responsibility to provide life-saving support for um, people living on the streets? I haven't seen that debate play out, you know, how much the city should be stepping in to help people. In general, the city has taken on temporary housing as one of its main focuses. The county, broadly speaking, is responsible for mental health services and drug treatment. But there's a lot of restrictions tied to that. Uh, for example, drug treatment gets cut off after 90 days for people. And what we're seeing now is the city step in under Mayor Bass to try to provide services beyond those 90 days. But a lot of the city's programs take a while to get off the ground because of bureaucracy and planning that needs to go into it. Okay, so then what about water? Is water covered under some department's budget? I'm not aware of any government entities that are required to make sure that unhoused people have access to water. Um, 
my understanding is it's optional. There's examples of the county providing funding for some showers. Uh, the city has these refresh spots. They operate in Skid Row where they hand out water bottles to folks. But there's really no one government entity that's responsible for making sure people have access to water on the streets. A lot of people are trying to find solutions elected officials and their staff, but they're finding a lot of difficulty in navigating these systems. All the bureaucracy that's involved, restrictions on funding, and um, a lack of kind of a coordinated, centralized database um, to know where resources are available. And in places like Skid Row, you see that kind of frustration play out in real time. That's actually something we heard a lot during our trip to Skid Row with Waterdrop LA. After a break, Evan and I are going to continue our story from that trip. And we hear from some of the unhoused people we met about their experiences with the services there. And we talked to city leaders about the services they offer. Well, the fact of the matter is this crisis took decades to develop. I'm happy with what we've been able to do, but it is woefully inadequate. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Pindarvis Harshaw, host of the Right Nowish podcast. Every week, I talk to the people who are creating art and culture and spreading it to the universe. As an artist, you always meet yourself. Every year, you're a different person. Essentially, we normalize a space where you can show up as your authentic self. Check out Right Nowish. Rooted in California's Bay Area, speaking to you. It's so many people of color, so many queer people. It's like I'm being celebrated in my fullness. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the show. If you're going to help somebody, find out what the problem is. Find out. If there's a medical problem, then try to get them some medical help. If there's a drug problem, get them some drug help. Or open up a damn place where they can. This is Hawk, one of the people we met in episode one. He lives in Skid Row, where he operates a one-man barbershop outside of his tent. He relies on water from the mutual aid group Water Drop LA and supplements that supply with a nearby fire hydrant. It's not Miss Bass's job alone, but because she's a mayor, she can put emphasis on the people who have something to show for what they've done. Sade's one of those people. Sade, Kamen, is a volunteer with Waterdrop, and she's known Hawk for years. She pointed to a building across the street from Hawk's tent. This is the refresh spot. This is where people get a lot of water that's not from us, so they have showers and bathrooms and a water box. That's probably like one of the best resources that the city has like installed. They do laundry. We can probably walk through. Sade brought us around the street to that facility, but we weren't able to speak on the record with any of the workers there. So we asked Hawk about 
his experiences with Refresh. It's a great asset to the homeless, but not all homeless people use that facility. Some of these people are like me. I don't do people, groups of people well. That mental thing can hold them back from many benefits, but they need assistance badly. I'm fortunate enough and blessed enough to have a fire hydrant because that's how I survive. I would think like the refresh spot is like one of the best interventions in the city. I will say that like in Skid Row, you have a lot of people who aren't stable enough to regularly access resources. We reach a lot of people who can't go into refresh or who like won't walk all the way or have avoidance issues. Refresh is not the only immediate term service from the city here in Skid Row. There's also the cooling and warming stations meant to keep people safe during extreme weather. These stations are actually a really good example of the mutual aid groups pushing the needle on what resources are provided by the city. They opened after a lot of pressure from these groups and other activists. But there has been a lot of criticism on the number of stations built and when they actually became available. For example, Nick's reporting on LAist highlights some significant delays rolling them out last summer. Sade told us the same thing too. At the start of the heat waves, there was nothing out there until people were like getting really mad and asking where the resources were. You know, there's a lot of money that like should be going into Skid Row that is not seen on the ground. I want to take a minute to talk about Skid Row. This four-square-mile neighborhood just southeast of downtown has a long history, going back to the 1800s. In the 1970s, city officials established an unofficial containment zone for homelessness, where they would allow shelters and other services. These days, Skid Row is viewed as a national epicenter of the homelessness crisis, and black and brown people are disproportionately represented in the neighborhood accounting for about 80% of the total population. There's a lot of people who have been living in the streets for a long time without adequate services. People told us they can get used to feeling forgotten out here. But they're people, you know? Those people are people too. We asked Dwight, another one of the Skid Row residents we met in episode one, what he would want to tell his city representatives about his life. Well, it's really... Not about me. It's not about me. It's about the city and how they have people outside. That's not normal, you know. They got to get us off the street. They got to get us off the street. And I think they're doing a good job, you know, the new mayor is. And I'd like to tell them thank you. Thank you. Because if it don't work, they put in a try. You see? Nothing beats a failure but a try. When we asked Sade about this, she was a bit more critical. Yeah, I mean, I think Dwight was, like, very nice. I think that that's, like, not the general relationship. I think people feel very angry and resentful. He's a senior citizen. Like, he should be inside. There should be housing. Like, he's been here for seven years. It's kind of crazy that there's not. Okay, so back to the big question we're asking today. Why aren't these services sufficient for unhoused people? And why is it that the volunteers are the ones who are filling the gaps? Council member, can you hear me? Hey, Evan. Yeah, I can. Can you hear me? Evan and I brought this question to some government officials. Council member Kevin De Leon, whose district includes Skid Row, 
Councilmember Nithya Raman, who got her start in mutual aid work before running for office, and LA Mayor Karen Bass, who ran on a promise to house 17,000 people. Up first, Councilmember De Leon. My name is Kevin DeLeon. I'm the council member for the CD14 Council District in the city of Los Angeles. Just to give you kind of a quick rundown of what we're looking for, the series, it's on mutual aid. What's the overlap between the services you guys provide? We told the council member about our time with the folks at Waterdrop LA and asked how we felt about these kinds of volunteer services. I would say that any organization or any entity or any group of individuals who are willing to go down to Skid Row or anywhere else, you know, in the city of Los Angeles or elsewhere and provide bottles of water is something that I've always welcomed. I would say don't stop, you know, keep doing it until we get every person off the streets. What I kind of want to understand is like, so these cooling centers there it's a great step towards a broader solution what was kind of the reasoning for why it took so long for those to show up like for instance this summer yeah it was sort of after some of the heat waves obviously policy moves slow but i'm just wondering why did it take so long to get to this solution yeah i'm i'm not going to get into the business of you know criticizing my predecessor or you know, perhaps other elected officials or uh, the bureaucracies, if you will, that exist at every level of government. Uh, one thing I just know is that as soon as we took over CD14, we made a determination uh, almost immediately that we have to open up numerous cooling centers. But as we mentioned earlier, while the cooling centers are a great addition for a lot of Skid Row residents, Nick's reporting on Elias showed that they rolled out after the summer heat waves. But despite that delay, they do highlight an example of the city working together with nonprofit groups and volunteers to offer services. So we asked the council member about those kinds of partnerships. You know, it's it's been a mixed bag. We've had a really good collaborative, cooperative working relationship with some organizations where the flow of information is, is quite easy. And we're working towards a mutual goal, which is to get folks off the streets sooner rather than later. At the same time, you know, we've had, you know, experiences that have not been uh, positive or pleasant, to say the least, where we'll have some organizations actually physically go out there and persuade our unhoused neighbors not to take any type of housing. Is that temporary housing? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, free housing, a, a room in a hotel, a, a tiny home. Mm-hmm. I, I find that to be very bizarre and a huge, huge detriment. And it's had an effect where many politicians, you know, become paralyzed and no longer will intervene to move a homeless encampment and get folks off the street and put a roof over the head for fear of severe criticism uh, or being canceled, you know, through social media platforms. To me, it's akin to, you know, doctors performing surgery and some folks just bust through the surgery room and start taking away the instruments from the doctor and, and believes that you should heal the individual in a very different way. And you have a patient that's on the surgery table who needs intervention sooner rather than later, or he or she may die or seriously become even much more sick. 
I, I just want to kind of focus on some of these urgent needs for a sec of like, you have people that might be overdosing who don't have access to Narcan. You have people Correct. who are maybe getting infectious disease because they don't have access to clean needles. You have other people who might be dying of thirst, you know, in a horrible worst case scenario, or just unable to wash a wound, right? In like the less worst case scenario. And they're getting some help and they're not getting enough. And I think that the big question everyone has is like, you're in charge. Why? Oh, why? What specifically? Because that's a huge one. Why is that urgent need not being met at 100%? Why does, if, if I can maybe perhaps rephrase your question, why does the rhetoric of urgency, whether it be through media platforms or press releases don't match the action well uh, or the urgency that you're describing with the patient on the table i think it's like it's like the if the person could potentially die tomorrow um why is there you know one refresh spot instead of 12 or why is there homeless health care for harm reduction, but not also you handing people clean needles. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. And I think that we've had, you know, historically, we've had a, a broken system, uh, a system that is incoherent, a system that has been siloed. The right hand doesn't speak to the left hand and, and vice versa. Uh, I've been very public for the last three years of my deep frustration with Los Angeles County, for example, Department of Mental Health, to help folks who are suffering from clinical depression to bipolar to schizophrenia. Because when you have someone who is screaming and yelling at the top of his or her lungs, uh, running down the street naked with feces caked onto his or her skin, well, we know that's not normal. But what we've done in LA is we've normalized it. But it is abnormal. It is unique and it should set us off with a sense of urgency and that's one of my biggest frustrations because it's especially cute in skid row when we spoke to the la county department of mental health they did agree that mental health services in the county including within the city of la fall under their jurisdiction Councilmember De Leon says that his office recently received $47 million from the California Transportation Commission, which they're planning to use to plant 500 trees and provide street furniture and street lighting within Skid Row. We'll return to some of Councilmember De Leon's other points on housing later in the series. But for now, Evan and I brought our question about mutual aid groups filling in these service gaps to Councilmember Nithya Raman. We'll be diving into that in just a minute. But first, a quick break.
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. You're listening to How to LA. Hey, Councilmember Nithya, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. It's Monday. It's Councilmember Nithya Raman represents Council District 4, which is a very wide district, including parts of Hollywood, Silver Lake, Sherman Oaks, Koreatown, and Van Nuys. And like we mentioned earlier, Councilmember Raman has a background in mutual aid and volunteering. She co founded the nonprofit SILA Neighborhood Homeless Coalition. I think one of the themes that we were seeing through our reporting, a lot of volunteers that provide these type of services, they're often saying they wish the government was more involved in the process of giving out mm. a certain type of aid, you know. Can you talk about the responsibility of the government in providing some of these kinds of life-saving services? I think that the government's role providing services for people who are experiencing homelessness directly on the street has been limited by our bureaucratic capacity. And the city has found it very, very challenging to provide things like hygiene services, showers, porta potties, never mind food or water. And I, I do think that's a problem. I think it's a real indictment of the city. Hygiene services are really something that the city has tried to do, but has found it either prohibitively expensive or just has not provided at the scale that it needs to be provided on the streets right now. We need a citywide response so that we can provide some of these interim services, even as we're working on housing, even as we're working on shelter, to people so that they're not suffering when they are on the streets. Learning from your experiences working with the city for a few years now, you're trying to increase access to services outside of housing as well. What have been some of the biggest challenges and where is the pushback coming from? When I was elected, there were a lot of large encampments on my district's streets. We did, when I first got here, initially focus on trying to provide greater hygiene services to them. When the city does this work, it can be extraordinarily expensive. What I learned from that experience was that I have limited staff. We had to choose between providing those services and organizing those efforts and trying to find money to pay for them and actually looking for housing for people where they could access those services, you know, in the context of a motel or a hotel room or a shelter site of some kind. We're always making tough decisions in the office. Where are we going to dedicate our staff time 
to putting resources together? And where are we going to allocate the very limited dollars that we're getting to address these issues for the district? She also says some challenges she's faced came from inside city council. So one of the challenges that we had when we were first doing programming around picking up trash regularly at encampments, I was a little bit surprised by this, actually, from my fellow council members. Some of them felt like putting into place a program like that was conceding that we were allowing homelessness to continue on L.A. streets. They felt like it was a defeatist posture. I didn't quite expect that. It took a long time for us to be able to move that piece of legislation through the committee process and through the full council because there was that real pushback. We also reached out to the mayor's office, hoping to interview the newly appointed Chief of Housing and Homelessness. But Mayor Karen Bass saw our email and got in touch with us directly. So we asked her about how her office approaches these kinds of immediate term needs. While you and your administration and other people are working to get people inside, people get housed, what do you think is the city's role? So addressing people's immediate needs the short-term, and you have to address short-term, but we have to have a short-term and a long-term strategy. So there's room and need for everybody to be doing their part. The mutual aid groups that go out and meet basic needs, I think that that's a wonderful thing. Now, what council offices do, I, I cannot respond to, but uh, my focus has been to help people get off the street and into housing. However, though, housing without services, without food, without all of the things that people need is insufficient. And if I have learned anything this year is how the uh, ability to provide services of every type is woefully inadequate. People need water, they need the ability to have basic hygiene, they need food, they need all of that. We are going to take a much deeper dive into housing in the Mayor's Inside Safe program in the next episode. But for now, I wanted to know how we ended up with a situation where the mayor herself is describing service access as woefully inadequate. Why did it end up this way? Let me just say that I do not have a magic wand. And it is not going to happen overnight. I talk to people all the time who say, you've been in office for 12 months. Why are there still homeless people? Well, the fact of the matter is this crisis took decades to develop. There are 46,000 people in the city of Los Angeles on the street. I could have spent the first few months or the first year of my administration developing the world's best program meeting with everybody under the sun and getting everybody's feedback and building a program. But I thought that was inappropriate considering people die on these streets every single day. I'm happy with what we've been able to do this year, especially because we have been building the plane and flying too. But the consequence of doing that is that I'm learning a lot of things. Mistakes are made along the way. We're learning about gaps and things that are woefully inadequate like services but I'm going to continue building the plane and flying it at the same time.
I want to pause and sit with this answer for a minute. I think, especially as journalists, there's a tendency to be more critical of elected officials and ask why isn't there a faster, better, more equitable solution? But the mayor is saying that if she spent time trying to build that perfect solution, more people might have died in the short term. I don't think this excuses criticisms of the city's efforts to house people, but I do think it's a part of the answer to our overall question for this episode. The mutual aid band-aid is still necessary because the city's strategy has been to push forward a plan, even if it's not a complete or perfect plan. We went back to Nick Gerda again. He's LA's unhoused communities reporter. Nick, what we've been talking about all this time, how do we take that mutual aid band-aid off? Well, basically the band-aid becomes less necessary when you don't have these service gaps to cover, right? The scale of the homelessness crisis has just exploded over the last 20, 30 years. A lot more people know someone, an extended family member, a friend, or a friend of a friend who's experienced homelessness. When you peel back the onion, you end up finding failures of systems to keep people housed, keep people on their feet, provide opportunities to deal with their addictions or mental health issues. And you keep going and you find more and more gaps and issues and problems. What we wanted to do was just try to answer this question of why are the volunteers responsible for these very basic things like water and overdose protection? And it sounds like we are kind of getting closer to an answer. But this is one of those stories where it's like the more stones you overturn, the more you realize, oh God, there's this whole giant cave underneath. Next Tuesday. One of the things that the city needs is a long-term system of interim housing, quality interim housing. Inside Safe is basically a plan to move people into interim shelter until permanent housing comes about. Interim housing. We have contracted with motels. I wish we had a much better situation. Can motels and other temporary housing solutions help us take off the mutual aid band-aid? One thing that's really dangerous about displacing people is they no longer have access to the very few reliable things that they have. That's in episode three, betting on a motel. My name is Kevin. I'm here with Water Drop Los Angeles here in Skid Row. I used to live on Skid Row here in downtown Los Angeles. I remember the day that my life changed when I went to prison for the last time. Came back to Skid Row wondering how could I help these people? How can I make somebody's life better? I looked at the water faucets and all that out here on the streets and I said, how do people gotta use this to survive here? It's got to be a better way. That's when I met Water Drop Los Angeles and we began to give clean water to the people, which is essential, especially during summertime. When I had a meeting here with Karen Bass, I first thing I asked her, what can we do different that the other mayor and them didn't do? What can the city do more to help us here? I tell Deleon, this councilman in this district, we shouldn't have to have a truck pull up here to get him water. The city should already have that in place. We need you to show us that you care. And when people care, things happen. I know if my life can change, 
Anybody's life can change if given opportunity. Harole is hosted by me, Brian De Los Santos. Our series on mutual aid is produced by Evan Jacoby. Our other team members include Victoria Alejandro, Megan Botel, Monica Bushman, and Erica Washington. Our intern is Tony Morales. Production support from Jens Campbell. Our executive producer is Megan Larson. We had additional editorial support for this series from Catherine Mailhouse, our director of content development, and Shana Naomi Krokmal, the vice president of podcasts at LAS Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.